Good morning. I will be reading 1 John 4:13 and Colossians 1, 9-14, ESV. 1 John 4:13, page 864 of your pew Bible. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now Colossians 1, 9-14, page 833. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of all the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. When I say the phrase power walking uh, or speed walking, I don't know what the first image that comes into your mind is, but I think about the older segment of population, perhaps in an empty mall during the summer when it's too, too hot or too muggy to be outside walking and just getting, getting going there uh, through the mall. Did you know, because I did not until this week, that speed walking or race walking is the competitive discipline of power walking? Did you know this? You may not be aware, but race walking is an Olympic event. There's a 20-kilometer event for men and women and a 50-kilometer event uh, for men. Uh, This was begun in the Olympics in 1904. So I know a lot has changed in the last 113 years. Uh, But apparently, in 1904, someone thought that it would be intriguing to watch people walk quickly. There are two rules to speed walking that I want to explain to you because we have a video clip here uh, that I want you to uh, know what you're seeing when you see these folks in action. The first rule is that one foot must remain in contact with the ground at all times. This is what differentiates speed walking from running. You can't enter a speed walking event and just start running. You'll get disqualified. There are judges there to make sure of this. So one foot must remain in contact with the ground. And the other main rule is that the front leg must be straightened when it strikes the ground. If all of that sounds awkward, the video will bear out the fact that it is indeed awkward. Let's take a quick look. Try your best to win them all and 
Now, no disrespect to you if you are a competitive speed walker or race walker. They're moving faster than I am when I go running. So, <laughs> all due respect there. Power walking, speed walking, race walking. This morning we conclude a four-part series on walking by faith uh, that Dr. Barnett has been leading us in out of the book of First John. I want to just do a quick recap on those first uh, three weeks, and if, I would encourage you, if you weren't here, miss some of those, to go back to the website, and you can listen and get caught up on, on those sermons. But the first week, Dr. Barnett talked about baby steps, and basically said that we are to be agreeing with God about who He is and who we are, and he told us the, the Latin word confiteri means to agree with, to declare, to confess. The second week, he talked about walking the right path what it means to act more Christianly, to walk away from the world, away from the craving and to the eternal God, away from the three Ps, pleasure, pride, and possessions. And then last week, uh, Dr. Barnett talked about walking in love, the immeasurable love of God, its motive, its cost, and its increase. So we'll conclude that series this morning talking about power, walking, and then next Sunday we have a a great uh, thing to offer, and that's Freedom Sunday. We always celebrate the Sunday before uh, July 4th. Cameron Massengale, Jim, and Sandra's grandson will be speaking with us, and then we'll have the preschool patriotic parade and lunch. So we hope that you'll be here next week uh, for that. So this morning we look at walking in the power of the Spirit. And we, we must begin this conversation by... Uh, looking at Christ himself, this is the case that Christ walked, lived his life in the power of the Spirit. But he was not the first person in the Bible to, to walk in the Spirit, to have power in uh, his or her life. We have a couple of pictures. Uh, the first one here is of one of our Old Testament heroes, Samson. Uh, you may remember this story from Judges 14.6. The New Living Translation says this, At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat. That, that particular uh, picture uh, was painted uh, 1525 by uh, Lucas Cranach the Elder, who is considered the most uh, successful German artist at that time and in fact was good friends with Martin Luther. So if when I say Martin Luther, if the portrait comes to your mind, it's probably the same uh, painter who, who painted that. So we know this story of Samson, the spirit came upon him, power, and he did incredible feats such as uh, fight with this line. Also we have uh, David. We know the story of, of David in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16 13 tells us, so Samuel anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And so you remember this story. This, this picture was actually uh, uncovered in um, modern-day Syria in 1932 uh, in what's called the Dura Europus Synagogue. So it went un, unknown about. It's a third-century um, depiction there, but that is of Samuel anointing David, and the scriptures tell us that because of that anointing that God had chosen him, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David, and of course we know 
uh, the incredible feats that, uh, that David did as well. I want to share a quote with you from uh, Doug Webster, one of the professors over at Beeson Divinity School. He's written this, this book about Christ uh, called the, A Passion for Christ. And uh, Dr. Webster says this, Jesus began his public ministry by claiming for himself the messianic expectation in Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's Luke 4.18. Which reveals his own consciousness of receiving the Spirit without limit, John 3.34. Jesus manifested the full range of the gifts of the Spirit. His life beautifully demonstrated the gifts of knowledge, wisdom, faith, and healing as signs of the kingdom. I want us to pause for just a moment and consider the first part of that quote. That according to Luke's gospel, Jesus stands up in his hometown of Nazareth, opens up the scroll, and in his first public statement, his first sermon, first public sermon, he quotes from Isaiah 61. And so this is the first thing that the crowd hears him say in that context. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm not sure that I've spent a lot of time really thinking about the fact that and trying to picture in my mind Jesus standing up for the three years of ministry that would come. And he did a lot of teaching, as we're all aware. There's, there's plenty in, in the four Gospels of, of, that record the teaching of Jesus. But to think of all the things that he could have said that he stood up and the first two words out of his mouth were the Spirit. That's pretty remarkable and certainly not coincidental. We have a picture here that I wanted to share with you, and I'm I'm sorry that I can't give you any information on this, uh, this picture. I found it online and I could not... I found it in one place. It was on a person's blog, but there was no mention of, of where it came from or who... Who created it? But we always have this kind of typical image of Christ in his baptism, uh, and, and that's kind of what's in our mind, I think, normally. And we see the dove descending there, uh, the Holy Spirit like a dove. But what kind of you know, captured my attention with this picture is that uh, it's more of, I think, represents the spiritual truth of that event. And we see, uh, we still see the Spirit descending like a dove, but we see. Christ there with his arms uh, folded out, which is normally, of course, the posture that we associate with him at the end of his life. But I think it's an appropriate posture because that anointing of the Spirit uh, was to empower him to fulfill what the Father had called him to do, sent him to the earth to do. And that was to, to deny himself, was to be obedient and humble Uh, and selfless all the way to the cross. So I thought that was a powerful image for us to see today. There's a passage from Acts 10.38 that I want to share with you. Acts 10.38, the NIV says like this, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. I think it's an interesting juxtaposition there that, that there are two powerful uh, forces uh, that, that we know of. There's, there's God, creator God, 
uh, that we know all about his, his power, his love, his greatness. But then also there's, this, there's an evil power. They're not equal at all. And sometimes I think that we, we think about two boxers going at it who are kind of on equal footing. And that's not the case. We know the end of the story. We know how it plays out. God is victorious. But we also recognize that until uh, the consummation of all history... Then, then we're on this earth where there's a lot of sin and there's a lot of darkness. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful thing. But to think that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit and that enabled him to go and do good and heal and really steal from the devil those who were in his grips. And we see those stories over and over. If we look at the Gospels, we see people of all walks of life young and old, Jewish and Gentile, uh, rich and poor, who were really, whether they knew it or not, they were, they were in, in uh, danger of, of death, spiritual death and probably physical death as well. And Christ would deliver them uh, out of Satan's grasp. Of course, we know that Messiah is the name uh, given to Christ, the Anointed One a king who comes to liberate. And this was the Jewish expectation that the Messiah would come and liberate. Remember, these were a a people who were occupied by Rome and were oppressed. They were not a freestanding nation or a freestanding people. But this was the crux of, of the problem that Jesus was facing. He was anointed, we believe that. He was spirit filled. We know that. He was the king of kings, and he came not to condemn the world, but to save it, John three seventeen, He came with power, but he came with a power unexpected. His power did not look like the power of men. His power was never self-serving or even self-preserving. It was, to a very large extent, the opposite of how power had been achieved and utilized by people throughout history. And the power of Jesus, this Holy Spirit power, still looks differently today, oftentimes, than what we might strive for and idolize in terms of personal strength and glory. Well, on your outline, you'll see that the second heading there is that the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to... What? We're going to run through about uh, five things here that the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to do. One, the Spirit enabled Jesus to love the unlovable. To love the unlovable. How do we do that apart from the Holy Spirit? Jesus did this and did it perfectly. And I believe the Holy Spirit helped empower him to do this. He touched the lepers, those who were untouchable. He would eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. He revealed himself to the Samaritan woman at the well. He showed mercy to the woman caught in adultery. He restored Peter after his three denials. We read the Gospels and we see that Jesus was relentless in how he loved those who were unlovable. Those who the world had looked at and said, ah, those people are worthless. Those people are dirty. Those people are 
Don't worry about those. And even his own disciples were guilty of that. Remember this story up here? The disciples were kind of shooing away the children. Jesus isn't a children's minister. He's not your preschool pastor. Go, go on. He's doing important work. And Jesus stopped them and rebuked them and said, bring them to me. They are worth my time. And he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Secondly, the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to make fools of the wise. Jesus set about to teach spiritual truths. And if you go back and read the Gospels just time and time again, it wasn't an Oprah kind of... It wasn't a happy kind of self-fulfillment. I mean, he was, he was criticizing the, the religious leaders, oftentimes uh, challenging them. And so early on in his ministry, all the way to the very end, we see them conspiring, we see them angry, we see them trying to trap Jesus and trick him, uh, and even hoping to kill him all throughout his ministry. And Jesus was able to, to not run away from them like a coward, but he, he would interact with them. He would interact with them on their turf. He would interact with them in public, uh, in the temple, wherever the moment called for. Thirdly, the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to heal and work miracles. We see over and over that his teaching and his healing went hand in hand. And perhaps the best illustration of this is the healing of the paralyzed man when his friend lowered him down through the roof. You remember the story. Great story. And Jesus looks at him. It says he saw their faith, which is an incredible phrase. He saw their faith and he said to the man, your sins are forgiven which isn't exactly what he was brought there for, and it, and it upset those around him. Who is this man who thinks he has the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus says, well, which is easier to say? It's, which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? That's kind of an unseeable, unknowable thing, or get up and, and be healed. And so he forgives the man's sins, restores his soul, and also heals his body. The fourth thing that the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to do was to surrender. You remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? No no light moment when he approaches the cross. He knows that the time is drawing near, and he's burdened. He's, He's just sweating and crying out to the Father. Take this cup from me, not yet not what I will, what you will. That surrender of his all in the garden and on the cross, I believe the Spirit enabled him to do that. And of course, he's unique in being raised from the dead in the power of the Spirit. I want to share with you a second uh, quote from, from Dr. Webster from his book. He says, Precisely because the joy is set before us and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are convinced that the example of Jesus is the practical pattern for the Christian life. The way to know Christ and to continue his ministry in the latter part of the 20th century is to become like Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. This is not just a matter of doctrine. Well, I believe in the Trinity. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Webster is saying, and I believe he's correct, that if as Christians we are supposed to be little Christ and and grow in our Christ-likeness, we can't do that except that the Holy Spirit would help us do that. It's an incredible truth. So Christ lived and, and walked 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the next point on our handout there is that we walk in the power of the Spirit in ministry or in missions. Our verse that is kind of our guiding verse for missions here at Brookwood is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the paradigm through which we approach missions. We categorize, if you go on our website, you can see very clearly that we categorize everything we do, whether it's in Jerusalem or, or in the larger context of, of Judea, our country, or spreading out in, in Samaria to the ends of the earth. But let's not forget that before we will be witnesses, we need to receive power. And when does that happen? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. So here's the question for us. What are the parallels between Christ walking in the power of the Spirit and how we walk in the power of the Spirit? Would it be that that the Holy Spirit enabled Christ to live one way, but the Holy Spirit is enabling and calling us to live down a separate path? No, the invitation is to follow in His steps. In fact, we know Scripture says that Jesus is in fact, the way. So let's pull up those five things that we just talked about Jesus. Now we're going to look at them through our lens of how are we living? How are we walking in the power of the Spirit? Do we love the unlovable? Jesus Jesus did it clearly if we look at the Gospels. Jesus loved the unlovable. Do we love the unlovable? Do we engage those at the margins of society? Because they are on the margins, right? If we are living here in the highway of life, then it means you kind of have to slow down a little bit and get off on the shoulder of the road to engage the marginalized. Because when they try to get in here, sometimes they get, they get run over. If we're not looking to engage them in a certain way, in a loving way, then we can just go on and, and not really think about those who are on the edges of society. Now, Jesus engaged the religious leaders. We talked about that debate, and they looked at him and they thought, who is this person who's challenging our authority? He has no you know, credibility. Uh, he didn't come from within us. So I don't know that, that we're supposed to go around. I'm not encouraging you by any means to, uh, to confront your religious leaders and challenge them. Uh, but, but I do think that we're called to engage mainstream culture. At the time of the early church, I mean, they were the mainstream culture. They were the religious leaders, but they were the leaders, period. They had great influence and power in in the villages and in the cities. They used their religious authority and power to control people in all sorts of ways. So it wasn't like people just encountered these Pharisees and Sadducees when they went to church. They were walking down the road. They would see you doing something. If they felt like you were breaking the law in some way, they would shame you right there in public. Now, see, I'm probably not going to do that if I run into you at Walmart. That's not my call. That's not what I feel like I'm supposed to do. But that's what those religious leaders were doing. So how do we engage mainstream culture? I think it's that we live in such a way that the world would look at the church and say, they are different. They are salt and light. If we are no different, if the, if the fruit of our lives doesn't make, isn't any substantial 
difference between that and everybody else, then I don't know what, what footing we had to stand on to say, let me tell you about this Jesus who will save you and make you whole and new again. If my life doesn't testify to that, then I just I have no credibility. But if my marriage testifies to it, if as a father that testifies to it, if as a businessman that testifies to it, if the way I handle my money testifies to it, if the way I spend my time, my free time, testifies to it, if I'd rather go to, to Nicaragua or to, to Kenya or Uganda or Mongolia or Cape Town, and, and, and some of you are willing to take vacation time to do that, that says something to the world, I think. That engages the culture and gives you credibility. Healing and working miracles. I don't know that I would say I'm doing a lot of that, but what invigorates me and encourages me is that it would seem to me that a number of our mission partners, when I go down and hear about the Aragons and what's going on uh, in Managua, I have to say it seems rather miraculous. When I hear Ralph talk about the fact that, that people are literally being taken up out of the gutter, destined for death, and made whole again, that seems pretty miraculous to me. I'm excited about that. I want to be in on that. And I think that's, that's what we're trying to do with our mission partners. Surrender all. Do we have that kind of selflessness? Not our will, but your will be done, Father. As Jesus did. And, and lastly, unique in being raised from the dead in the power of the Spirit. I don't know that I'm going to be buried in a tomb and, and brought back out, but what Romans tells us is that that same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is working in our lives to make us whole, to make us like Jesus. And if I am raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, and if I have a a spirit-filled, empowered walk, then I think these are a few things that might uh, testify to that. Do I have an energy? I mean, a gospel kind of energy, a spiritual vitality. Is there some vibrancy in my life as it relates to who Jesus is and what God is doing in the world? If we are a church that seems rather apathetic, then I don't know how that testifies to the world that we've been raised from the dead? Is there an enthusiasm, a focus, a purpose? Do we show transformation? Are we about imparting life to people or taking life? I believe we're about imparting life. Just a few Sundays ago, we celebrated Pentecost. It was the one Sunday the, the, uh, the linen out there on the cross was, was red, I believe. The coming of the Holy Spirit. And again, Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I want to read just very quickly as we uh, close here this morning from Isaiah. Well-known passage, Isaiah 40. Verses 28 to 31, it says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run 
and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Are we walking as Christ walked? The more that we look at the Scriptures, that we understand the Spirit-filled life of Christ, then the more we can use that to examine our own lives and see if we are bearing witness that same Spirit empowering us to walk in the way of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we are thankful this morning. Where would we be without the gift of your Holy Spirit? Lord, we would be left seeing, reading, hearing about, learning these stories of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. But if he had not said to his disciples that he was going to to send a comforter, send one who would be a counselor, a guide, an encourager, an equipper, then that would be a very, very sad thing for us all these years later. But God, you've been so gracious You have given of your spirit, and not just a little bit, but the fullness of your spirit. And we are empowered and enabled to walk as Jesus walked, to walk by faith, to live a life that is a life of love, that is a life of humility, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, all these things, and yet a life of absolute, unparalleled, indisputable power. Lord, may we never confuse the fact that we are called to be gentle and meek and humble and all this and think that by that means that we are to live powerless lives. We pray, Lord, that we would see no contradiction. In fact, we would understand that a life that is selfless, that is surrendered and yielded, is a life where the power of the Holy Spirit is at work. Thank you, O God, that your grace is sufficient and your power is, in fact, made perfect in our weakness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.